This is On Location. I'm Joe Mamlin. Today's episode comes to you on location from Virginia, New York, and of course, Anchorage, Alaska. But first, On Location is produced by the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Tim Leitner and me. You can find the podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google, iHeartRadio, and many more. On today's show, Tim Leitner welcomes his co-host, Mary Ellen Keeley, from the Virginia Child Support Program, and together they have a conversation with Rob Velkoff on the topic of intergovernmental hot topics. Rob's a known expert in this area of child support. He has a lot of great suggestions and ideas to offer, and it's a lively discussion throughout. It's going to be a great show, so stick around, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to another episode of NCA On Location, coming to you from New York, Virginia, and Alaska. Today, we are pleased to have a guest that is well known to the child support community, including amongst our NCA members, Rob Velkoff, to talk about intergovernmental hot topics. I'm Tim Leitner with the Alaska Child Support Services Division in Anchorage, Alaska. And let me first introduce my co-host today, Mary Ellen Keeley. Mary Ellen? Hello, everyone. As Tim said, my name is Mary Ellen Keeley. Um, I work for Child Support Enforcement in Virginia. I am also the host of my own limited series podcast. That's what you call it when you start a podcast and then stop recording them. Support VA Kids. But we're not here to talk about me today. We're here to talk about Rob. So you introduce yourself. Uh, hi, folks. I'm Rob Valkoff. I'm an independent consultant with my own agency, Intergovernmental Support Services, uh, supplying interstate training and working on intergovernmental child support projects. I'm originally from Coney Island in Brooklyn, uh, lived there for the first few decades plus of my life, and now I reside in upstate New York on the Saratoga area, uh, just north of Albany. Excellent. Thank you. So what roles have you held in child support, and where did you get your start? Uh, let's see. I worked for the New York State Division of Child Support services for over 30 years, dating myself a little bit there. Uh, and I also worked for the Albany County Child Support Office for three years before that. Uh, when I was with New York State, I ran the Central Registry for several years. I was the interstate and international contact for New York. But I also worked in a lot of other uh, units and bureaus in uh, when I was with New York State. I worked in policy. I worked in program operations, uh, our fiscal unit. I worked in our support disbursement unit. Basically, almost every unit there was never in systems, which is a good thing. 
I'm also a former uh, president of the of NCS sister organization, the Eastern Regional Interstate Child Support Association, ERICSA, and I'm the current treasurer of that organization. Basically, when I went to graduate school in upstate New York, uh, I got a state job. Well, not a state job, a county job working for Albany County, and then I stayed on uh, in you know working my way up the ladder. Excellent. I remember when I worked intergovernmental cases here in Virginia. I could always count on you to answer my question or get me the piece of paper that I needed. So it's nice that things have kind of come full circle here today. So what does a typical day look like for you? Uh, well, now that I'm independent, it's a lot easier. I don't have to do that long commute to downtown Albany and fight for parking spaces. And uh, in our cold winters, I don't have to get dressed up in seven layers of clothes and uh Although people from Alaska, Tim uh, knows, knows what, what that's like, I'm sure. Virginia, you're in between uh, north and south, so I'm sure you have your cold days as well. But not having to fight through traffic and everything is, is, is kind of cool. I do have that long commute now, the, the 10 or 12 steps from my bedroom to my office. That's uh, I'm trying to get my, my steps in. It's, it's, not, it's not as easy. But, um, you know, I miss seeing the old gang at the uh, New York State office. But it's just so much easier that I'm, you know, on my own, um, you know, for for over 33 years, I was with, with, with the government. Now that I'm an independent, it's a very different animal. Uh, I usually work from my home computer. This is when I'm not like out on the field at a project or at a, a national conference or something like that or doing training for another state. This is when I'm, I'm home. I work from normally, uh, I don't know, 8 a.m. ish, uh, which means I can sleep later in the morning, too. And I work until I'm done. I don't know, five, six, seven, depending on, on what, I'm, what I'm working on. And I cook dinner for my son and myself. And if my daughter's around, she's got her own place, but she stops by for free food from time to time. So it's just a lot uh, less hectic pace than it was when I was working for uh, for the government in New York. So my next question was going to be about what's changed about your work. And I think you've, you've answered about that. Is there anything about the actual date, the work that you're doing that's different than when you worked for the state? Yeah, I, oh, the, the difference between being independent and working for the government, I missed a steady paycheck. That was always nice every other Tuesday to have that automatically deposited. But as far as the work itself, um, when I was with New York, and I liked my time in New York State very, very much, but you know, I had to do what... I was told to do. I worked in all those other units that I mentioned before. It wasn't just interstate. Now I'm only doing interstate uh, and intergovernmental, you know, the international and some tribal stuff and things of, of, of that nature. So it's what I do 24 7 now. Well, 24 7 as far as actual work is, is concerned. I, uh, I'm working on a project in Pennsylvania now that I've been working on for over a year. I've done a lot of training in other states. There's other projects that I'm involved with as well. So it's just, you know, I, I'm doing what I enjoy doing the most. When you work for a government office, even one that I enjoyed as much as New York, you do what you're told to a degree. Now I do what I want. I can come and go as I please now. I don't have to ask for permission to attend an out-of-state conference. If I want to go, I go. I do have to ask my boss in quotes for, for permission. I fight with myself sometimes. Is there enough money in my budget to go to this conference? Well, I'm not sure. Yes, there is. No, there's not. So, yeah, my boss can be a pain sometimes, but uh, because, because I'm my own boss, I, I do fight with myself some. But no, it is something that I enjoy. I highly recommend it to people once they've reached a certain age. I'm not going to date myself that much, but it, it is, it's a nice change of pace from uh, you know, the, the bureaucracy that I was in before, as much as I did enjoy working for, for, for the state office. I miss um, 
Well, I don't miss working on the individual cases. I do miss, you know, speaking to the individual workers in the other states that would ask me for, for, for help. I'd get tons of emails and phone calls, you know, can I help out with this case or that case? And I always tried my, my best. I didn't always succeed, but I did always try, I think. So I, I do kind of miss that, that day-to-day communications, but because I'm so heavily involved in NCIA and ERICSA and some of the other organizations, I do get, you know, some, some of that still. So I, I do enjoy the, uh, the interstate workers across the, the country. I really like communicating with them, dealing with them, working with them. That's kind of a, one of the best parts of my day now. So Rob, just listening to you speak today, really evident that there is not a piece other than you said systems of child support that you haven't touched. And um, intergovernmental, interstate, what it used to be called, and, and let me just put a parenthesis here, Back in the day when I first started at Child Support, I worked in interstate for about 10 and a half years before I um, took and graduated and moved on. But intergovernmental interstate, I know has been your passion and your focus for a number of years. And um, you've been the go-to person for, for most anybody that I talk to about interstate intergovernmental stuff. So it's it's great to have you on today to talk more about that. So let me, let me just ask, for our listeners with limited experience with intergovernmental interstate, um, with these type of cases, can you give us a little quick overview of what makes a case intergovernmental? Sure, Tim. There is there are some different definitions out there, but I've always defined intergovernmental child support as any case where one party resides in one jurisdiction, it could be a state, one of the U.S. territories, it could be a tribe, one of our tribal partners, another country even, and the other party resides in a different jurisdiction. There are cases that have two different counties in the same state. Those do not count as intergovernmental. Those are intrastate, not interstate. But when there's uh, a second government entity involved, that's an interstate case. But even on your local cases where there's not a second state involved yet, but the parties do live in another state or jurisdiction, they, they can have some um, intergovernmental component to it. So while I, I don't normally define those as intergovernmental cases, there, there could be limited services, there could be intergovernmental enforcement tools, things of that nature. So it depends who you ask, I, I guess, but generally speaking, it's when the parties live in different states or countries or, tri- or a state and a tribe, something like that, makes the case an intergovernmental case. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And so, Rob, what is, what is similar or different between an interstate case and a regular case many might call domestic or or just a regular enforcement type case. Can you kind of tell us the difference and similarities between those two? Sure. Um, I've always said that intergovernmental child support is like asparagus. Either you love it or you hate it. There's very little in, in between there. I've talked to some workers in other states and they're like, oh, I would never work intergovernmental. That's the hardest part. I just steer away from that. But then I'll talk to an intergovernmental worker and, oh, yeah, we love intergovernmental. That's, that's all we do. Or that's a good you know, part of, of what I do, um, depending on the size of the county or, or, or the size of the state. If they, there's some workers that only work intergovernmental, some workers that work all types of cases. So there's a lot of var- variation there. I mean, what makes it different than what I call a local case where everyone's in the same jurisdiction? There are several things that, that make it different. One is that you have to deal with another child support worker in another state. Um, that may sound easy. Uh, I think people that work on intergovernmental cases know that that's not uh, it can be very difficult to get a hold of someone, and I'll get more involved with uh, communications in, in a couple of minutes when we talk about that. There's also different laws. I mean, every state, uh, the 50 states and the four territories all have UFSA, the Uniform Interstate Family Support Act. Um, the older workers who've been around for a long time, you know who you are, 
I uh, can remember when there were different versions of U.S. out there. Uh, there was a 1996 version, 2001 version, and then the 2008, which is what we have today. And there was a time where all three versions were being used simultaneously by different states. I mean, the first word of U.S. is uniform, and we weren't. But now it's been um, several years that all states have had the same version of U.S. out there. Um, so th that's one thing. But keep in mind that our tribal partners do not have UFSA. They use the uh, Federal Act, the Full Faith and Credit for Child Support Orders Act. Because UFSA is a state law. It was federally mandated that all states pass it verbatim, but it's still a state law. So our tribal partner partners do not use UFSA. They may use some UFSA-like policies and procedures, but they use the Federal Act. Of course, in international cases, other countries don't have UFSA. That's a U.S. thing. They have their own... Um, you know, their own particular laws and rules and regs that they have to follow. So that that's one of the differences. Even with all the states having UFSA, though, Tim, there's different interpretations of UFSA. It's not all black and white as we would like it to be. And there's also, there's other state laws. I mean, UFSA is, a, as I said before, it's a state law. Every state in the country has other laws that pertain to child support. I mean, UFSA is the main interstate law. But there's other, you know, laws and rules and regulations that other states have, that all states have, that talk about uh, just things like, you know, that are different. Age of emancipation is different from states. Uh, statute of limitations and arrears, interest rates, just, you know, how they do what, what they do. And the goal of UFSA was to make it uniform, but we all know that states do things differently. There's, and that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's the reality of our, of our child support work. People that work with other states know that, you know, there is variation and there's variation within from county to county within a state and from court to court within a state. So there's the word uniform is, I think, is is what we'd like it to be. But the reality, as we all know, is, you know, there are different ways that states do, do things and learning what those ways are and, you know, what they do, what they don't do and how they they uh, they do it. That's a that's a very difficult thing. I, I highlighted on communications before when you're working, uh, again, the term I use is a local case where both parties are in your county or at least within your, your state, you seem to, people know how to deal with those. Most trust workers know their own laws in their own state, you know, and their own rules and regulations. And I'm not saying those are easy cases, but, you know, if you need information, you know how to obtain it. On an interstate case uh, or uh, international or tribal, an intergovernmental case, you often have to get information from somewhere else. And doing that, is not always an easy thing. I mean, there's some federal tools that are helpful. There's other items to assist as well, and I can get to that in, in a few. But those are just some of the, the things that make uh, intergovernmental cases a little bit different, or a lot different, actually, than those local cases. So super simple is what you're saying, intergovernmental. <laughs> <laughs> I I always really enjoyed one of my favorite parts about intergovernmental work was learning about the different policies in the other states and like how they were different or similar to how we did business. I always thought that was really fascinating. So you recently wrote an article for an issue of the NCA Child Support Communique, better known as CSQ, titled Intergovernmental Hot Topics. What are some of the hot topics in intergovernmental casework? and some of the big problems regarding interstate case processing. Uh, where, where, where do we, we begin? This actually started the uh, National Council of Child Support Directors, NCCSD, had a conference last summer, uh, June, I believe, and we talked about some of these there, and then they said, why don't we do an interesting uh, article on it, and I'm always happy to help. 
And they said, uh, let's see, how about 1,800 to 2,000 words? That's our average length of an article. And I said, sure. And I start typing away. And next thing I know, I'm at 6,000 words and counting. And I'm like, uh-oh, I think I uh, went a little bit overboard here. And I, uh, when I sh told that to the communique people, they sort of rolled their eyes at me and said, well, can you pare it down a little bit? So I cut it in half. And I think it's going to end up being two different articles, one in uh, very shortly and then one like either later on in the year, or early next next year. And then they took out some of what I consider to be humor, which is probably a good thing that they, they took that out. We cut it down to about 2,300 words. So they were able to live to live with that. Some of the topics that I touch on in the first article, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, before I say what I did talk about, I'll say what I did not talk about. People sometimes ask me, you know, what's the main problem with interstate cases? Is it communications? And a lot of frontline workers will yell at me now about what I'm about to say, but I, I've always said that I don't consider that the number one problem, only because it's such a, I don't know that it's a solvable issue. I mean, there are some hints and tips that I'll, I'll be giving about how to communicate with other states, but the main problem that I, I think now is interstate payment processing. Uh, I don't like the rules and regulations that are out there. States should absolutely follow them until unless they are changed, but for now, so that's one of the things that uh, the article talks about, different options for interstate payment processing. Um, I talk about case closure. Actually, the case closure is the second half of, of, the, um, of that article. Sorry, I do talk about, well, I do hint on, on case closure, but there's also information about enforcement of dead cases and $0 orders, whether states should be involved with that too. So those are just some of the things that the article uh, we'll be that the first half of the article, I should say, we'll be talking on. The second half, I'll be talking about more case closure issues, uh, interest uh, that varies from state to state. People just are thrilled with that concept. Limited services, other things, things like that. So part A, I will call it, is a lot about interstate payment processing and enforcement of those dead cases and zero orders. What do you think is the number one problem facing intergovernmental child support workers today? Okay, and again, I mentioned before that frontline workers may not agree with me on this one, but uh, interstate payment processing can be a very difficult thing. And um, I mean, OCSC has an excellent action transmittal on this, 1707, and uh, it, it explains exactly what is expected of states. But I, I think that the concept came about when there'd be a two-state case and states could not agree on what, what the arrears were. I'll use your two states. Let's say there's a a case between Virginia and Alaska, and uh, Virginia says the arrears are 5,000, and Alaska says the arrears are 4,000, and you exchange payment records, but you still can't figure out, you know, what the correct arrears amount is supposed to be. Uh, OCSC had a policy that the state that issued the order, the controlling order, they're the ones that make the official determination of arrears. So in my example of Virginia, if it was a Virginia order that was being enforced, Virginia would be able to say, you know, these are the official arrears, um, Alaska would have to go by our figures, and that was an excellent policy at that time. Um, that that policy is over 20 years old. There's been a lot of technological changes since, since then, and it actually the concept changed from what I'll call a tiebreaker, when you know when the states couldn't agree, someone had to have the official record, so they said the controlling order state. But it, it I don't think it's, it was ever meant to be what it is now. Now, even when a, a case meets federal and state case closure criteria, if you're the controlling order state, the state that issued the order, you're expected to keep a partial case open, a payment record only case, 
or in an interstate case, a limited uh, services payment forwarding case where you're not really working on the case, but you're just keeping track of what the payments are uh, in case you have interest or something like that. And that, I mean, it was never really that, that, that tiebreaker that I call it was never really, I don't think, supposed to envelop these situations or these scenarios. Um, it's not in UIFSA that controlling order state issue uh, has the official termination of rears. It's in the official commentary to UIFSA. And our OCSE partners created policy around that uh, official commentary, not about you know what is stated in UIFSA or in federal regs. So, and I just to expect a state that has closed its case, and has, you know, both parties have left their state, there's one or two other states now involved. To expect that original state that issued the order to still maintain payment records seems like an awful difficult thing. It's not a subject to federal financial participation, FFP. So um, um, the states do not get that 66% reimbursement from the federal government. They're not actually seeing payments. They just have to keep a payment record, which means that the other states have to inform the court order state of these payments. And then they have to have this payment record a lot of states are not doing that. I'd say more than half. I've never been able to figure out, you know, I can't give you an exact number, but the majority of states cannot do that, have a payment record only case, even though that, that is the policy of our OCSE office. And that transmittal that I mentioned before, 1707, it's about four and a half years old at this point in time. And I think if states had planned on having those types of cases, the uh, limited services uh, payment forwarding cases or the payment record only cases. If they want, were going to do that, they would have done it by now. Four and a half years is enough time. It, it did take a few states a few years to get up and running, and, and that's fine. But I would think at this point in time, states that wanted those types of cases would have had those types of cases. And to my knowledge, it's less than half are able to, to do exactly that. So I don't know. To me, it's time to all time of death on this and uh, maybe acknowledge that this policy is not the best. And again, I'm just stating a personal opinion about an existing policy. I'm not giving anyone permission to ignore the policy. It is very well written. It is very well thought out. OCSC did an excellent job on that action transmittal of putting everything in writing. So I'm not giving anyone permission to ignore the policies. I'm just saying that I would like us to consider um, some other type of policy about interstate payment processing where the court order state that has closed its case, and the assumption is they properly closed the, the case, can get out of it 100% and let the other states uh, figure out what the area should be. I know there's it's difficult to charge another state's interest rates. I think it's doable. They'd have, we have to add, you know, create different tools, uh, arrears calculators or something like that that can charge other states' interest, and that's difficult, but that shouldn't be the only reason to have to keep that a third state involved. And, uh, you know, child support cases are complicated enough without, you know, having yet a third state involved in an, in an interstate case. So just, you know, my own opinion, I'd like to see some changes, make it simpler, um, less convoluted, I think could be a good thing further down the line. Great. Thanks, Rob. So, so a lot of moving parts and pieces for sure, a lot of older developed policies and, and really a lot of challenges. So let me just ask you this, kind of a flip side of that. What what do you see as your biggest win in intergovernmental cases? I mean, it could be something from the past. It could be something from the near present or something you see upcoming. But what, what has been a real big win in intergovernmental cases? I think that the fact that a child support organizations such as NCA and ERICSA and WICSEC and NTCSA, the tribal association, 
uh, are talking more about interstate now than they ever were before. It was the, sort of the redheaded stepchild of child sport, I think. In the past, people didn't like talking about it. OCSC had some, some experts on it. But even they would uh, tend to work on a lot of international issues or think things like that. There weren't as many interstate child support workers that would just concentrate solely on that. But I think over the years, we, there's been, again, I mentioned those national organizations, but there's regional conferences as well that a lot of states participate in that they'll get, I don't know, three or four or five states together and they'll talk for like a day or so about a lot of issues, but including intergovernmental. NCA's two conferences, the Policy Forum, which is coming up, as well as the Leadership Symposium in the summer. There's usually an interstate session or, or two. You mentioned the Hot Topics one that I'm going to be doing. UICSIC always has interstate workshops at their conference at the National Tribal Transport Association Conference. It was just in Connecticut uh, several months back. I did a interstate training at that one. Our sister organization, ERICSA, Eastern Regional, has an entire intergovernmental track at their conference nine sessions that I'm, I'm the coordinator of putting together with a lot of help, nine different workshops, one each time slot. So an intergovernmental worker can actually just do intergovernmental sessions if, if, if they want to. Of course, they have the freedom to you know pick whichever ones that they would like. Ericsson is also having, um, last year for the first time, we did an all-day virtual Erixa intergovernmental training event. We're going to be doing that again this year. It was held last August, this one it's going to be in the fall. We don't have an exact date yet where it's, it's virtual, so you don't have to get all of that out of state of, of approval. And it's going to be uh, six sessions. You can choose any three that are just, just intergovernmental. So I think you know, bringing the awareness out there that the national organizations have done and following up with some really cool uh, regional conferences or meetings, I guess is the right term, just you know, bringing people's attention to that. The, these are difficult cases. They are not as easy to work as your local cases. Uh, your local cases, both parties are in the same county or at least in the same state. When the parties are in different states or a state in a tribe or state in a territory or even another country, the custodial parent is not going to know as much about the non-custodial parent as they would if they're just living in the same town. So you're already at a disadvantage there. Plus, there's two government offices involved, which is never a good thing. As good as the government offices are, you know, the, the less governments, the better. If it's just your your county office, you don't have to deal with anybody else. You can get all the information yourselves. So there's, I think, an awareness of the difficulty that interstate cases have has been increasing, and there's more, you know, there's more funding for it. Uh, I think, you know, the more people know about it, the, the the better. So all of these training opportunities is definitely a good thing. So I consider that that a big win, much more so than, you know, on this one case we succeeded. Those individual cases are important. Don't get me wrong. That's why all the conferences do a lot of networking and meeting a child worker from another state, getting that point of contact. That's that is a huge thing. So you know, those are all wins. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So let me ask this question. You, you touched on communication between caseworkers or different jurisdictions. Can you can you tell us a little bit about. Uh, how caseworkers from different states or different jurisdictions can communicate better with one another. Absolutely. This is, um, and, and I was teasing earlier about, you know, frontline workers being mad at me for saying that communications is not the biggest problem. It, it certainly is one of the biggest problems in interstate case processing. Get a hold, getting a hold of that other worker in the other jurisdiction. Anyone who's worked on an interstate case um, yeah, will tell you stories uh, ad nauseum about how difficult it can be to get a hold of the right, right person. There are communication centers, uh, telephone centers that sometimes they have to work with. Sometimes they can get a hold of the individual worker. 
I always say, you know, they say we need direct points of contact. Can I get a direct phone number or email? And I always say, you know, is your direct contact information out there? When you send a transmittal or an e or something, do you put your direct phone number and direct email on that? And if everyone in the country answered yes, then it would be problem solved, call centers notwithstanding. And yes, some states have policies against doing that, so it's not up to the individual worker. Most workers will say, oh, yeah, sure, I always put my direct points of contact out there. And if 100% of the child workers in the country were able to say that, then, you know, it would be, be problem solved. But, you know, getting hold of the right person is definitely a difficult thing. So, again, putting your direct contact information out there is, is very important. Um, there's other things. The, the, the federal tool, the Intergovernmental Reference Guide, the IRG, has points of contact out there. Uh, one person per each state or territory or tribe updates that. Well, it could be more than one person, but there's someone is designated to do that. Please make sure that that information is current because that's that, that I know. I mean, some people say, Rob, you have all these great contacts. Where do you get them from? Like, well, I look on the IRG and I see who the contact for a certain state or county is. It's not rocket science. But there's other points of contact, too. There's um, WIPSIC and ERICSA have uh, created this pledge that they have where a child worker, anyone in the, in the country, you don't even have to be a member of those organizations, can agree to put their personal contact information on this directory or Excel spreadsheet is what it is. And then they get access to that spreadsheet from with workers' information from all over the country. My, my name has been on there for many, many years. Wix, Wixit gets the attaboy for starting this. Rick's uh, uh, just uh, about a year ago joined, joined in to like double up the amount of uh, names that are on there. And you know, if you shoot me an email, I can put you in touch with the people in charge of that and to get your name on the list. And um, before we share the list with someone, they do have to agree to have their contact information on that list too. So that's an excellent tool that a lot of workers do. It's not necessarily the exactly right worker on a case you're looking for, but at least it's someone that can put you in touch with the right person uh, in that case. There's one other, um, I'm not sure the exact title, it's a Midwest Consortium list that was put together by some of our Midwestern state partners. And they've got a very extensive list of contacts um, in different states and tribes and territories. Um, so between all these lists, between the RG, the WIPSEC, WIPSEC governmental pledge, the, the Midwestern consortium list, there's more and more direct points of contact out there. But again, my main point is if you expect people to you know, answer you directly, the best you can do is make sure that your contact information is out there because if everyone says that it is, then a lot of these problems would be solved. Also, you know, please, when someone sends you a, an email or a phone call, you know, try your best to get back to them as soon as possible. I know you've got a ton of work. Everyone in this country is overworked. There's some child support workers that have four-digit caseloads over a thousand, which I think is crazy, but that's not what we're talking about here. But you know, do your best to contact them them, them, them back. Uh, central registries in each state are a terrific first point of contact. They don't generally work on the individual cases, but they can put you in touch with the person that does. And that information is always on the IRG. Hopefully it, it, it's current. And they're more of a troubleshooter. Please don't contact the central registry as your first point of contact. You know, try to go to the local office. But if you can't get through to someone there, central registries are really good. There's a federal requirement. They have five working days to respond to you. So shoot them an email, give them a phone call. I like emails better, but some, some people, if you're in a hurry, a phone call is easier, whatever works best. If you don't know who to contact in that state, contact the center registry. They can look up the case 
and at least put you in touch with uh, the right the right office. So there's a lot of tools out there. Um, our federal office has some excellent tools. I mentioned the IRG. You can get information over quick for interstate cases for kids. Excuse my fast talking, even for a New Yorker, I'm a fast talker. Query interstate cases for kids, Q-U-I-C-K, is a terrific way to get information on another state's case without actually contacting anyone. You can get that directly. Everyone knows about CESNET, the way to obtain information from another state on a child support case. There's EDE, Electronic Document Exchange, which has been around for a few few years now as a way to get documents from one state to another. There's a brand new thing called um, the Communications Center that our federal office has just started within the last year, which is a secure way of emailing states and some employers are adding themselves to that, that the Communications Center and our federal office as well. Uh, you don't have to worry about those encrypted state emails that you have to you know, write down 100 different passwords for 100 different offices. It's secure. It's on the portal. Um, I think there's only a, uh, I'm going to say eight states. I could be off by a state or two uh, and a few employers, but the more states, again, it's only been around for a few months now. And you can obtain information of that from that on the OCSC web website or email me and I can put you in touch with the right person. So our, our federal partners have definitely created a lot of really good interstate tools to help workers find information and or the right contact person. But I do know that that's, you know, frontline workers will always say getting a hold of the right person is the main problem. And the more we can work on that and be responsive. Um, if you're responsive and if everyone is responsive, uh, that's my kumbaya song. I'll, I'll let that go. But uh, hopefully that's something that can be at least, uh, if not solved 100%, hopefully the problems can be decreased over time. There's definitely some forward motion, um, and I do appreciate all the tools from OCSE. That's a really good point um, that are available for folks to use. So you might have covered this one already, but I think it's important, so I'm going to ask it again just to make sure. And that is, what is your personal favorite part of intergovernmental casework? Oh, boy. Uh, only one. Uh, I do enjoy uh, talking to and meeting the workers from the other states and tribes and territories and countries. A lot of the conferences I mentioned have networking opportunities. NC has the uh, Intergovernmental Connects work group that I personally chair. Every other month we have a phone call and we get people from states all over the, the country to talk about a different topic each time. We've talked about modifications before. We've talked about communications. We're going to have one about contempt coming up in February. You do have to be a member of NCA to be a part of this NCA Connects Intergovernmental work group. But there's a lot of states that are statewide members, and as long as your state is a statewide member, then so so are you. It's something that I think, you know, we have 50-plus people on the call, and they all talk about, you know, how their jurisdiction does whatever the topic is. I give the topic out weeks in advance so people can plan and get some information. It's unofficial. We're not, you know, holding anyone sentence, you know, to official policy. It's just how you handle whatever the, the, the topic is. And our February topic, like I said, is contempt. So that's something. And I really enjoy hearing from these other states. I know uh, Eastern Regional Association has an intergovernmental tools work group. You do have to be a member of ERICSA. I've gone to the last conference to be a part of that. Um, but at these conferences, there's always networking opportunities. And I really enjoyed meeting the people from the other states. I mean, you may have exchanged an email or phone call, but to actually meet the person face-to-face -face is pretty cool. So be between these team meetings, uh, work groups, or associations, 
Or if you can get to an out-of-state conference, I know it's difficult, but if you can get to the NC Policy Forum or the NC Leadership Symposium or one of the regional ones, Eastern Regional or Western Regional or Tribal, to actually meet the workers is, uh, I always enjoy that. I'll always take as much time as I can to talk to people and say hello. And they'll say, uh, oh, Rob, you're a big help on a case or occasionally, oh, well, you helped a little bit, but not as much as we wanted to. And I sort of, now that I don't get that that much, but it's it's nice to realize that we're not alone in the world, that there are intergovernmental workers all over the country. And to meet them is a pretty cool thing. Yeah, I think Tim said this at the beginning. I think I might use the word legend when I'm talking about Rob Belkoff and child support. So I don't think I like that. Can you lower people's expectations? Can you say Rob is <laughs> average? So when they contact me and I give them a little above average help, then they be, oh, that's pretty cool. But legend, they expect a lot out of me. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> with uh, you know, with uh, intergovernmental issues, anyone who wants to shoot me an email or call me. I'm happy to talk about, again, not case specifics like I did back in the day when I was with New York, but um, I'll be happy to share what knowledge I may have with anyone out there, uh, my unlegendary knowledge of interstate. Speaking of knowledge, what kind of training opportunities are out there for intergovernmental staff? Uh, I did hit on a, a lot of them. There's one this coming Thursday, two days, well, from when we are taping this. It may already have happened, but there's an advanced UFSA web talk on Thursday, January 20th from 2 to 3.15. That's with um, Diane Potts from Public Knowledge and myself talking about, we, we've done a UFC basics last year and we did like an intermediate level. This is the advanced one. If this web talk is comes out after that's already done, uh, I'm sure NCA keeps you know recordings of those so you can go back and get that. So that's something that, that I'm pushing. The NCA Policy Forum, which is in early February, has a good intergovernmental session at it. Uh, those hot topics I mentioned. Uh, NCO Leadership Symposium usually has something on the intergovernmental realm. They don't always, you have to look at, and I know it's a little early for, for that uh, planning. I mentioned uh, RICSA, RICSEC, and NTCSA, Eastern Regional, Western Regional, and Tribal. Again, I, I, I've been the session coordinator for the RICSA intergovernmental workshops for about a decade now. We work very hard on getting several, I think this year it's nine, intergovernmental sessions. So if you can get to that, that's a good thing. Our Western interstate partners uh, at WICSEC have intergovernmental sessions too, as do our tribal. Uh, last year, Rick, uh, I mentioned the uh, uh, interstate training event. Uh, that's a full day. It's virtual. Um, that's a really good thing. So look for these specific training. You know, <laughs> what I do for a living is intergovernmental training. I'm not going to push push that, but and a lot of there's a lot of other interstate experts out there too that are willing to to speak. So on our federal partners are an absolute gem of a tool when it comes to interstate processing. They've done a lot of webinars and other training. The federal website is chock full of intergovernmental items and things, things like that. So between the organizations and between our federal OCSE partners and uh, you know uh, just different state staff, I think most states have trainers out there. A lot of states use local colleges to do their 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 training. I know uh, that's what New York did back in the day. I know Pennsylvania, New Jersey do the same states that I deal with a lot. A lot of other uh, states have uh, training partners. So there, there is a, a lot of intergovernmental training tools out there. You have to look a little bit, but they can definitely be found. And I know everyone is super busy, but I think an hour or two here and there uh, are well worth your while is, uh, to get this training, to learn what you can do, what you can't do, how to do it. Uh, I mentioned before, there's beginner trainings, there's intermediate level, there's the advanced, like what 
is going to be happening on a web talk uh, on January 20th. It's worth your time. I mean, uh, I always shudder when I hear people say, oh, uh, we, we can't get money for training. Uh, or they don't want us out of the office. You know, we're too busy with our cases. But training makes your job easier. It's well worth the money. It's all FFPable, the federal financial participation. You get two thirds of it back. Um, so it's not as expensive as you might think. And I, a lot of states say, well, it's not the money, it's the appearance. And transport workers are multitasking more than ever before, doing crazy amounts of work. I mentioned you know, some states have four-digit caseloads per staff member. Even over 500 is the commonplace now, and even that's crazy, way too many cases. So transport workers are expected to know more than ever before. And how can they know that if they don't take the training that is offered? So between uh, and the NCO web, web talks, where we do intergovernmental throughout the year, uh, the associations, your own training, I think training is more important now than it ever has been before. And I know it can be difficult, but it's definitely worth your time and expense and resources to participate in as much training as you can get on the international. If there's a specific workshop that you want, feel free to shoot me an email and I'll see if that uh, workshop exists out there and I can either send you PowerPoints or something like that. So um, there's a lot of training out there, just a matter of getting a hold of the right materials. Great. Thanks, Rob. You know, Mary Ellen had touched on just identifying you as being a legend in the intergovernmental arena, but really, you have really inspired a lot of people, a lot of caseworkers, a lot of people that have moved up in the child support ranks. I just have to ask the question, what inspires you? Yeah, first of all, I, th I think we've all, we've set a low bar for the word legend here, but my own kids are the things that are most important to me in my life. My 25-year-old daughter, my 21-year-old son who lives with me, and uh, they can be a pain sometimes, but overall, they're still the most important things in my life that I enjoy. Uh, you know, my son I see every day, uh, half the time it's just, you know, bumping into each other on the way to the kitchen, and then I don't see him at all because he's, he's, he's out a lot. Uh, my daughter, I see a couple of times a month, so I really enjoy uh, my time with her. And I think that's what makes a lot of us good child workers. You don't have to have children to be a good child worker, but I think it really helps when you look at relationships with, with, with your children and you realize that not everyone has that opportunity out there. You know, there's so many parents that are not a part of their children's lives, and that, that does push me some to be involved with them. I also enjoy really enjoy working for NCIA and ERICSA. These are not-for-profit organizations. I don't know if charitable organizations is the right term, but they are not-for-profit, and they teach and train possible workers, among many other things, are involved with policy issues and legislative issues too. But as far as as the um, you know as that goes, uh, teaching people how to be better possible workers that is very important. I like volunteering for these agencies. What I do for NCIA and ERICSA, and for, you know, when I go to tri the Tribal Association in Wixec, those are volunteer things. I think volunteering your time is really important. Before the call today, Tim and I were just talking back and forth. I volunteer for the uh, Regional Food Bank of Northeastern New York. I do that every year. I'm the annoying guy at the mall who comes up to you begging for, uh, for money. If you're uh, in the mall of state New York around the Christmas holidays, the winter holidays, you use saw me and, and heard me. I think it's very important to volunteer your time to give something back. I got involved in this when my kids were in high school and they had a volunteer and I was always go with them. And I stuck stuck with it because I think it's important to volunteer for an organization like NCIA or, or a local charity that, that, that you may have. 
I get just as much out of that as whatever help I, I can give. I was at our local arena at a college basketball game soliciting money for the food bank this past Sunday. And I enjoy that a lot. And I think I would challenge you know everyone who can hear my voice today to try to do more. I mean, giving a financial donation is great, but if you can donate your time as well, NC has a lot of volunteer opportunities available. Rixa does, Wixic does too, I'm sure, Tribal Association, but for your local charities too. And I think that I get just as much out of that as, as I've given to them. So that's something that I really enjoy doing. That's a great charge. It'll be interesting to see the, the increase in volunteering of child support staff after the release of this podcast. Speaking of those organizations, the child support organizations that you work with, uh, volunteer with, what are you most looking forward to at their conferences this year? Is there a particular session? It can be immediate uh, conference or one way in the future, your, your pick. Well, first, I'm going to start by saying I'm really happy that the conferences are back on in person again. I know the Leadership Symposium was in Austin last year. That was the first national conference in person in a long time. Uh, Rixa and Wixec had both canceled the 2020 and 2021 conferences. They had virtual conferences instead. The in-person ones were, were canceled. And NCA in 2020, they had to cancel the one. Now we're starting up again. Hopefully we'll be able to continue that. The, you know, changes on a daily basis. Uh, what's going on in, in, in the world. Um, again, the NCA policy form is scheduled for early February, uh, both virtual and in-person. I'll be there in person. If I am, please stop by and say hello. I'll let you buy me a drink. Um, as far as the individual sessions are concerned, more than an individual session, I love the networking opportunities that these conferences afford. There'll be uh, workshops that involve multiple states talking about how your state does what, what they do. There's been uh, interjurisdictional fairs started with Wixic. Rixa has picked up on it as well. A lot of these are virtual too, so if you can't get to those conferences in another state, virtual is a, a lot easier and a lot less expensive too, where states talk about what, what they do, what they do. So I really like those uh, sessions where it's you know a handful of states talking about either specific best practice that they have, talking about a policy that they work well on, or just answering Arixa does every year a roundtable of local states to wherever we happen to be, and we ask intergovernmental questions, and they say how their states handle that. So I really like those types of sessions that are as much networking as they are the stand-up and lecture-based. I also like sessions that are more roundtable than lecture, and I understand that the lecture-based sessions are important. They absolutely are. But there's more and more, I think, the conferences, the policy forum, and um, you know, especially leadership symposium, I think even more so, we'll be having roundtable discussions that are much, I like them better than the someone stands up there for 90 minutes with a PowerPoint string information. Those are fine, but I really like the back and forth, the give and take discussions where we you just talk about issues of, of the day. Um, they're interesting, they're educational, they can be controversial sometimes, not everyone agrees on everything, but that's, 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 that's fine too. And uh, a lot of the scenario-based workshops where, you know, they give a scenario and you see an answer and people are like, well, what are the right answers? Only to realize that there may not be a right answer. It's not a, we don't live in a black and white world. There's a lot of shades of gray out there. So workshops that, you know, that, that have that information, offer good ideas and best practices. Um, I think more and more conferences are having those, and those are ones I really enjoy. Less stand-up lecture, more back and forth, round tables, uh, Q&A type sessions. So 
look you should look look for those if you take if you're at any of these conferences i like those a lot so you know rob speaking of speaking of conferences and upcoming conferences i hear and i just heard again that you're going to be presenting at the nca 2022 policy forum can you tell us a little bit about that who you're presenting with what the topic is anything you want to plug for this this event and your plenary coming up yes thank you it's intergovernmental hot topics. I did mention a couple of times. My co-presenters are uh, Jim Fleming from North Dakota. He's the child support director there, president-elect of NCIA, and he's also the current, um, I'm going to use the term president. I could be off there for the National Council of Child Support Directors. He's the number one person in that too. I'm not sure what title he's got there. Jim's going to be co-presenting with me. Uh, Jim's always tremendous uh, knowledge he has on so many issues. Um, including interstate. Uh, Diane Potts, who I'm doing the webinar with from Public Knowledge, is probably the best person that I've ever worked with as far as the legal aspects of interstate. Uh, her coworker, Meg Haynes, is probably equal. I'll, I'll give them an equal sh shout out there. But Diane is super knowledgeable about the legal aspects of interstate case processing, and she and I team together well. I do the more caseworker aspects, and she does the legal aspects. Veronda Bullock from Virginia, some of the Mary Ellen knows, is going to be moderating. Um, so between Jim with his, you know, 40 director knowledge and Diane with her legal knowledge and me with my caseworker knowledge, between the three of us, I think we really have uh, very diverse views about some of the things such as interstate parent processing, which I was boring people with earlier on, uh, on, on this uh, event. Uh, we're going to be talking about some intergovernmental case closure issues, um, a lot of, you know, the interest on child support which is always a very controversial topic. States have different percentage amounts. Some some have zero, some love it, some hate it. That's going to be something that uh, the three of us will be going back and forth on. We'll be polling the audience to see how the audience thinks about these as well. And again, Policy Forum is both in-person in Washington, D.C. and virtual. If you can't get out-of-state permission, the virtual option is, is there. It's not that expensive either. You can hear the three of us go back and forth. If Diane and Jim say one thing and I say something else, I'd go with what Diane and Jim say. But at least, uh, you know, we're going to have differences of opinion, which, which is good. It's not a stand-up lecture. I said that I, those are not ones that I get as much out of. This is just a back-and-forth, give-and-take session. We're doing the same one at Eastern Regional in uh, New Orleans in May. Uh, Jim has someone from his staff presenting, co-presenting with Diane and I. Because um, uh, I think it, it is an interesting just get those hard topics that not everyone agrees on and going back and forth about pros and cons and best practices and good ideas. There's a difference between what I call the theory of child support and the reality of child support. Theory is what you're supposed to do, and those are very important, but I really like the workshops that deal with the reality of child support. What are states really doing out there? What should they be doing? What shouldn't they be doing? And the hot topics one at the policy forum is uh, one I'll call the reality of child support. What's actually happening out there and uh, thoughts for the future. You know, uh, maybe our federal partners will consider, and they're, they're very good at OCSC about listening to the states and seeing, you know, what needs to be changed, what needs to stay the same, what needs to be tweaked. Uh, so that's what this, this uh, session is, is going to be about. So between the policy forum and Rick's later on the year, this intergovernmental hot topics should be an interesting workshop. Hopefully. Well, I will definitely make sure I check that one out. I'll be attending virtually. I won't get to see you guys in person, but definitely check that out. So are there any last thoughts or thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with today? 
Uh, I'll stick with the interstate concept. That's why uh, I'm on today. It can be frustrating, I know, for uh, you're a worker in a state and you're trying to get information on a case in another state or another you know, tribe or country or what have you. And you talk to seven different people and you're passed around. It's been weeks and weeks and you get frustrated. And I get that. And that's the reality of dealing with intergovernmental child support cases. It, it's going to be like that. But it can be better than that if we all take that step. And this is, again, my kumbaya speech, the holding hands and the everyone working together thing. But... Um, you know, try very hard to put yourself in that other worker's shoes. We all try it. Uh, we all we all have to deal with it. You know, getting a hold of the right person is difficult, but calling them back, emailing them back uh, in a timely manner, and putting your direct contact information out there will solve so many problems. We are all frustrated by it, and be patient too. The days where you can just pick up a phone and you're going to reach the right worker immediately, those that's very difficult and get all the information you need. Uh, the workers in the United States are going to need time to gather that information. That's why I like emails, uh, but even those should be responded to as quickly as possible. And if we you know, commit to help one another on these cases, we're going to solve so many problems, I think. So I'll tell a story from an old New York City case that I had back when I was with New York State. I got a phone call. It was after four o'clock on a Friday from a small county in a certain state, I don't need to go into that level of detail, saying that they wanted the New York City office to release a bank account lien that day. It was like a few minutes after four o'clock on a Friday. And I said, give me a couple of weeks, maybe it can be released. And they're like, well, why can't New York City just call up the bank and ask them to release it? And I'm like, really? That's what you would do? And in their small county, maybe they, they can do that. you know. Uh, but when you're dealing with different jurisdictions, you have to know how these things work. So I took the information down. I had them, her email me. I sent it along to the New York City office uh, you know, late on a Friday. That Monday, New York City took the information, did the right paperwork, sent it off to the bank. That Tuesday, the lien was released. I thought that was really good. I thought that, you know, you're not going to get better than that unless you can call the bank and say, this is John from Salisbury, release the lien, which most banks are not willing to do. So uh, I think that as long as you're realistic about your expectations, that you just can't get things done in five minutes, but you can get things done in, in, in a few days. And I was like, props to my New York City office on that one. And uh, you know, if you're patient and are willing to do the work and willing to let others give them the chance to do the work, I think interstate payment processing and communications and intergovernmental child support cases in general can be a lot better than they have been in, in, in the past. So a certain commitment on your part and on all of our parts can make that happen. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but that's what I'm going to go with now. Great. Well, Rob, we want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of NCIA On Location to speak to us about intergovernmental hot topics and to share a little bit about yourself. We also wanted to say thank you to all that you have done in the Chancellor program, as well as what you do for NCIA. I want to encourage our listeners to check out Rob's article in the January 2022 edition of the CSQ and to attend his plenary session, virtually or in person, at the 2022 NCA Policy Forum in Washington, D.C. Thank you again to our listeners for joining us today. On behalf of Mary Ellen Keeley and myself, I'm Tim Leitner, and this has been On Location. My pleasure.
Well, thanks again very much to Rob for joining us on the podcast today. And thanks, of course, to Mary Ellen for doing a great job as co-host on today's show. And thanks, of course, to Tim Leitner, not only for moderating a great discussion, but for all the work he does in getting the episode ready for the broadcast. On Location is available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. We have a lot of great episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe and check out our previous work as well. We also appreciate your ratings, feedback, comments, and suggestions. If you have an idea for a topic or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us using the contact link on our website. On Location is a production of the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Tim Leitner and me. Thanks for joining me. I'm Joe Mamlin, and this has been On Location.